Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. John chapter 1. This is quite a chapter, is it not? Last week we went through the first five verses, and this week we're going to go through verse 6 down to verse 14. When I look at this, the question that comes to my mind is why? What a strange story John tells. John is, is opening up literally the curtain of heaven and letting us peer in, and, and he shows us the word of God who is, it's the pre-incarnate son, Jesus Christ. And he shows us Jesus as being the one through whom the Father spoke the worlds into being. But then that one who, through whom the worlds were spoken into being, comes down and he, he uses the word tabernacled. He says that that word came down and tabernacled among us. The word means to camp in a tent. It's the specific word tent. He tented among us. And, the, and, and would undoubtedly bring to mind the tabernacle in the wilderness. He tabernacled among us. And the life in him became the light of men. He revealed to us God and he revealed to us all this truth. And then he goes on, not in the section we're reading, but in a few verses later. He's, he's called the Lamb of God. So the word of God tabernacled among us and became the light of men and then was brutally crucified as the Lamb of God. It's quite a story. Why? Isn't there another way than for God's Son to come down and do this? Why did it have to be like that? Now, I'm, I'm cautioned because we've just heard that we need to be like a child wean child on our fathers and not ask too many hard questions. I'm trying to answer it from the word as much as I can. And then God, be, God willing, I will stop where the word stops. Holy Spirit, would you open our hearts? We aren't curious. We are hungry. We are thirsty. We want to know more of you that we might be closer to you and walk more, more deeply with you. I pray, Father, that the word would open to me and to us that I would be faithful and speak your word and not mine. Come, dear one. We, we love you, and we draw near to you now in the word of God. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, here we go. I'll start reading. I'm going to start at verse 1, and we'll go down to verse 14. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. We saw that the, the, the word with there is actually uh, toward, pros, Toward, the word was toward God, facing toward God, and the word was, was God. And he was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. Now, is John the writer talking about himself or someone else? Someone else. He's talking about John the 
Baptist, correct. Remember this, the writer, John, who never once mentions him or his family members in this, in the entire gospel, because it's a humility. He just, he doesn't mention his mom. He will talk about who it is. He doesn't mention anybody, his brother. He will always say his brother. It's just the way he is. He just doesn't put himself in his own gospel. It's really quite beautiful. But this John he's talking about was his rabbi originally. Remember this? This John who wrote and Andrew were the two who were standing with John the Baptist when John looked up, saw Jesus and said, behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Um, So John's talking about his old rabbi here. And I'll explain maybe a little later. uh, It's in your daily Bible study. uh, Why he takes the time with John. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Would you say children of God? God. Now that's the goal of all of this. Even to those who believe in his name, who who were born not of blood, literally bloods, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Would you say that? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten. Say only begotten. The only begotten from the father, full of grace and truth. There are spiritual laws which God has put into place to govern spiritual matters. Just as surely as there are physical laws which govern the natural world. The spiritual world is not a land of make-believe. It's a very real, it's very real and has its own order. There are things that can be done and things that can't, cannot be done. Even God submits himself to the spiritual laws he's established. Did you hear that? I want to emphasize that because a lot of people think because he's God, he can do anything he wants to do. You know, can God roll a stone, make a stone bigger than one he can move, you know, kind of thing. You you begin to get into this, this kind of philosophical speculation. The God you find in the Bible has established the foundations of the world, has established deep principles, which are an expression of who he is. So it doesn't change. And he plays by his own rules. He himself submits to these standards of righteousness. You need to know that. He doesn't just do anything he wants. He works within that which is truly righteous. But many people don't realize this. They think of him as a chaotic tyrant who can and will do whatever he wishes. All sorts of silly assumptions have been made about him. And one of the worst is that he happily sends people to hell. How often have you heard the phrase, I can't believe in a God who'd send people, you know. He doesn't send anybody to hell. He's trying to keep you out of there. Those who believe this picture him as an arbitrary judge who decides who he will and won't let into heaven. And the standard they believe he uses is frighteningly vague. 
They think he weighs our good deeds and our bad deeds, examines our lives to see if we've been religious enough, and then picks those he likes. It's no wonder that many people openly or secretly fear and even hate him. They think his will is arbitrary and that his future kingdom will be a place where every aspect of a person's life is controlled by a harsh dictator. Do you remember the name Christopher Hitchens? The man passed away, well, you know, what, a year or so ago? He was a, a, a British atheist and, uh, and a philosopher and, and a very bright man. Uh, he died of cancer this past, last year, if I recall, and, uh, which is, is kind of tragic. He, made a, he, he was talking about God, and he, he made this statement about... about he talked about God as this terrible dictator. And then he made this statement. He said, heaven, the heaven, the Bible presents, it's going to be a, a celestial North Korea. Now, that's very clever. Where does he get that thinking? If you deal with that deterministic God, where he, if you deal with the God, frankly, that has been presented in a lot of Christianity, the one who picks some people for heaven and sends other people to hell. Picks some people to show his mercy and other people to show his righteous wrath. And that he controls everything. And, and how many of us today would go, he's in control, you know, and you've just had some, an auto accident, but he's in control. Wow. So he causes auto accident. Who needs the devil? God's got it handled. So that every ugly thing is somehow God's secret well. That's what Christopher Hitchens was reacting against. It was that God. The horror of it is that's a lie. That's not the real one. I deeply hope that man somehow met the real one before he passed. Because his, his wrath was against a false image of God. Somebody, somebody said, people don't hate God. They haven't met him. Uh, only in Christ do we see the truth. You, when you look at Jesus, celestial North Korea, not Jesus, huh? Ah, but when we talk about God, then we can talk that way. It's because we're, we're so perverse in our thinking. Jesus represents his father perfectly. When you see him, you see the Father. That's the best news in the world. These assumptions haven't arisen in a vacuum. There's been so much false teaching about God. Many have been taught these things since they were children. And, and to make matters worse, there seems to be a perverse impulse in us that tends to blame God for everything bad and take credit for everything good. And something strange happens in our minds when we feel shame. It causes us to assume that everyone is judging us and that leaves us defensive and angry, but no one gets more blame for the guilt we feel than God, which is why we desperately need someone to introduce us to the true God. And that's what John is doing in these opening verses to his gospel. He's destroying these lies by showing us the amazing steps God took to save us. We discover a very different God from the false image so many carry in their minds. When John pictures us, this is verse five, 
When John pictures Jesus in heaven, he calls him the word because it was through Jesus that the Father spoke all creation into being. But when he describes him on earth, he calls him the light. Because as a man, Jesus allowed the human race to see with our own eyes the true nature of God. Like a light being ignited in a dark room, Jesus showed us God and in doing so drove back the darkness of spiritual confusion and deception. Verse 6, Jesus was unique. He was God's divine son, not just another prophet. And as the book of Hebrews points out, he was not an angel either. But in order to prepare the hearts of people, the people of Israel to receive his son, God sent a very special human prophet before him. John the apostle now brings into this, we're at at verse 6, and he's suddenly talking about John the Baptist. Why, Why is that? Why does, he, why does he turn and talk about John the Baptist so early in this gospel? John the Baptist had been a very important figure in Israel's recent history. Many thousands of people had gone into the Judean wilderness to listen to him and be baptized. He was so powerfully used by God that, that can't, the king who put him to death was afraid God would raise him back to life. Even after John's death, some of his disciples continued preaching his message and carried it to other nations. Do you realize that? They literally evangelized out with John's message. You know, the the Messiah is coming, repent. That was their message. One of the cities, this is interesting, one of the cities we know had a community of his disciples was Ephesus. Remember Acts 19? Paul arrives there and he discovers a group of the disciples of John. John's disciples, the whole community of John's disciples in the city of Ephesus. The very place where the apostle John most likely wrote this gospel. When Paul finally was beheaded, he, he had left Timothy pastoring in Ephesus. Do you recall this? And then he was, but he wrote from, from the prison that 2 Timothy, that's the letter. He's been, re, remember, we've seen it. He was he was released. He had about four, three, four years of ministry. He's rearrested. Now he's going to have his head cut off. And he writes 2 Timothy. It's his final letter. And he says to Timothy, bring my coat, my cloak, and the parchments that I left there in Troas. And he says, please come before winter because it's cold. And he's in a jail cell now. He's not in an apartment. Now he's in some cell. Timothy does come. Timothy leaves his pastoral assignment and comes to be with Paul. And from all I can see is then arrested himself and is later released. Another story. Who's pastoring Ephesus? This great church in that great city. This is when John, the beloved, the apostle, came up to Ephesus and many, much of tradition says, and brought Jesus' mother Mary with him for he had become her son. He was caring for her. So he begins pastoring. So he becomes the bishop. That's how you get the book of Revelation and all. He's writing to all these churches in his area that he is all, he's pastoring all these things. So John is writing this gospel you're reading. I believe early. I believe he gets to Ephesus and he gets to the situation and he realizes we got trouble. People have lost touch with who Jesus is. And he writes this gospel. So he's, one of the things he has to address is, is the John the Baptist issue. Verses 9 and 10. 
John was a witness, but Jesus was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every true, every human being. The one who created the human race became a man and lived among us, but most humans who heard him and watched him minister did not realize who he was. The world Jesus entered belonged to him. Remember how it says he came to his own. It was because he was its creator, but it it was also because he was the Messiah, whom the Father promised would be heir of all things. John says he came to his own using the neuter form of the word own. So it literally means to his own things. The, the Greek term was an, ex, pardon me, the term was a Greek expression, which often is used to mean home. So John pictures Jesus as someone arriving at a place that belongs to him, like a property owner coming to inspect his vineyard or the head of a household coming home and knocking on his own front door. Now that's important. Get this. You've got the word of God through whom the worlds were spoken into being. Nothing was created that was, that was created. In him is life, even as the father has life in himself. Coming to the earth and knocking on the door and saying, can I come in? You would think, I mean, if I were God, I'd show up with guns blazing, you know? <laughs> like, what's that? <laughs> Don't talk to me like that. You know who I am? You too. <laughs> right? That's how we'd handle it. And you just, you just can't get away from the humility of the creator of heaven and earth. It's just amazing. So he, he says, he, he pictures him, he came to his own home and knocked on the door. And his own did not receive him. And that, now this time it says, John says his own did not receive him, meaning welcome him. And this time he uses the masculine plural form of the word own, which causes it to mean his own people. Referring generally to the nation of Israel, but possibly even to his own hometown. What was that? Nazareth. Remember how Nazareth received him? And his family, his brothers, sisters did not believe in him. They treated him rudely. They, they made him out to be a religious charlatan and insulted him. Most of the people Jesus encountered did not recognize him as God's savior or believe he was God's divine son. But some did. So John says, but as many as received him, he gave to them the right, meaning freedom, power, and authority to act, to become children of God, to those believing in, literally into his name the name which God calls him, who were born not of blood, literally bloods, parents passing on physical life to their child, nor by the will of the flesh, a conception that resulted from sexual desire, nor by the will of man, humans deciding to have a child, but by the will of God. Having made it clear that the humanity of Jesus did not result from the natural forces which normally produce human beings, John selected a very special word to describe the miracle of the incarnation. He says, and the word became flesh and tabernacled. Say tabernacled again. Tabernacle. Yeah, tabernacled, dwelled in a tent among us. In other words, the spirit of the eternal son came down from heaven and took up residence in a, in a tent of human flesh. By bringing in the image 
of the tabernacle, John emphasizes that the incarnation was the arrival of a pre-existent person. Just as John, God came down from heaven and personally camped among the people of Israel during the Exodus, the Son of God came down from heaven and camped among the human race in the physical body of Jesus Christ. That tent image, Paul picks it up. Remember in 2 Corinthians 5? He says, when this earthly tent of ours is finally worn out, we go on. We fly away. Every one of the terms John uses in this passage is so full of meaning. I mean, think of them. Word of God, light of men, tabernacled, children of God, born of God, lamb of God. I mean, it is just loaded. Even glory. I mean, just you pick everything in the, in, the, in the passage. So full of meaning, it's hard to summarize what he's saying. But there's no missing the fact that the Son of God left heaven and came to earth to rescue us. God didn't lay out a standard of holiness and demand that we climb up to him. He has come to us and invited us to welcome him, to receive him, to believe in him. That means God is not the one who's doing the rejecting. You see where I'm going? People say, why would God send someone to hell? He doesn't. He's literally come from heaven to come after us. It's us who does the rejecting. We reject him. He doesn't reject us. He initiates the relationship. He comes after us. He knocks on our door. And he had to do this according to his own spiritual laws. There's a song. I don't know whether it's a good thing if you know it or not. Remember, knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. Knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. Knock, knock, knock. And you just do that forever and ever and it's cool. What's the picture? The picture is here we are. We've come up to heaven and we're going, let me in. Let me in. Would you let me in? I'm knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. Let me in. That's entirely wrong. The picture is of, of, of Jesus. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Knock, knock, knocking on our door. Saying, would you let me in? God's mysterious laws. When the Father through Jesus, spoke the physical and spiritual worlds into existence. He established laws to govern those worlds. And those laws reflect his character. They are an expression of who he is. So they are unchangeable. They are eternal. Since he knows all things, God knew before he made us that if he gave us a free will and an opportunity to rebel, we would walk away from him. So when he laid... So when he laid the foundations of the universe, pardon me, he laid into the foundations of the universe the deep laws that would govern everything. He secretly put into place a plan to rescue us. When God knew he would make everything, he literally designed into the laws he set into place in the universe a plan to save us. I was watching Nova. Uh, the other day, and uh, it was on math, and I'm such a good mathematician, I thought, well, I should check this out. And it, but it was interesting, th what, they were, what they were discussing was that the mathematics that we have developed here on our planet 
amazingly works throughout the universe. So that Einstein and everybody are going, now, did we, did we invent math? Or did we discover math? Because it appears that there is a mathematics, there is a structure to this universe. It's not just, it's not just true planet Earth. It's true a, a billion light years from here. It's, it's as though somebody made this thing. Of course, I'm going, come on, come on. Can't you see it? There it is. Come on. There it is. The whole world, the whole universe works on this system. And then, then they were noticing what they called the Fibonacci series. And, and, and the plants, they all hang. And it's true not only on our, a sunflower, it's true in a galaxy. <laughs> How does this happen that it's all so similar? I, I know what my mother would say. She's an artist. She says, well, the same designer did it all. Not only did he, do you see his, do you see his, his fingerprints all over the universe, his, his mind invested into this universe, but it's true in the spiritual world as well. He laid the foundations of the spiritual world with deep laws in it as well. He alone knew how he would do this, and he, he secretly put into place a plan to rescue us. He alone knew how he would do this, and he hid his plan from the rulers of this age and the prophets, and I think even the angels themselves. Turn with me to 1 Peter. I'm suggesting that God put into place spiritual laws which would make it possible for a savior. And I believe that he literally hid the meaning of a, a bunch of it. It says, it says from the prophets, from, from the rulers of this age, which I think is not only physical rulers, human rulers, but also spiritual rulers. And then he even mentions angels. Watch this. First uh, Peter chapter one, I'm at verse 10. As to this salvation... The prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries. So picture Isaiah, picture Zephaniah. So picture these guys going, who are we talking about? We're writing what you're giving us. We're seeing these, these, these images as we, as we write, but we don't know who this is. We don't understand this. Verse 11, seeking to know what person or time the spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves. God said, I'm not telling you. But you, in other words, they were told that future generations will understand what you write, but you won't. In these things which, you have now, which have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which what? Angels long to look. Not even the angels understood what was going on. What is he doing? Why is, is the son doing this? Now, I have written out here a, a quote from Paul. We speak God's wisdom, he says, in a mystery. The hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. 
the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Does that mean Pilate and Herod and, and uh, whomever else, uh, they wouldn't have crucified him? Maybe. I think it probably does include them. Does it mean the demonic realm itself? Does it mean Satan? I have often wondered to myself why Satan was so stupid. Now, you can see in the crucifixion the fury that comes against Jesus. He's savaged. I mean, it's just, it becomes, it's clearly a demonic, empowered moment. The darkness comes, the hatred, the spitting, the violation of every kind of law. It just goes, it just, it, it, go, it ramps up into the demonic. You see it happen. And I thought to myself, boy, he's dumb. In crucifying Christ, he undoes himself. This is Satan's defeat. He will now lose and be destroyed. Why does he do that? I think he didn't get it. I think God is a really good poker player. <laughs> and I admire that because I am not. Don't play poker, by the way. No, I don't. But, but the idea that God can somehow hide his cards. Not unrighteously. He hides his cards, though. And there was something he had sewn into place so that the devil literally played into his hands. But just as it is written, Paul says, quote, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. Yet now when we look back at the Old Testament from the perspective of the new, we discovered that those deep spiritual laws were already at work from Adam and Eve onward. There are some that we can now, here are some that we can now recognize. Number one, sin produces physical and spiritual death. And by death, the Bible does not mean cessation of existence. It means separation. In physical death, the soul, and notice I'm defining soul differently than you do on TV, but soul is the breath. Clay, clay Adam, God breathes into his nostrils the soul, the breath of life. It's biological life. It's not your intellect, will, and emotions. Your intellect, will, and emotions is you. You are also then made in the image of God. You are spirit. That's where intellect, will, and emotions come from. It's, it's, it's you. So that's what I'm talking about here. In physical death, the soul, the biological life, is separated from the body. In spiritual death, the spirit, the conscious person, intellect, will, and emotions, is separated from God. See, when Adam sinned, both things went into play. Immediately, separation from God and, and, as, and gradually, his soul was separated from his body. It is possible for the guilt of one person's sin to be transferred to someone else, providing that there is a suitable substitute. Even the penalty of death can be transferred so that another may die in our place. Where has God taught that deep principle all the way through the Old Testament? Sacrificial system, right? 
I mean, that happened with, that happened with, you, you see that with Seth, the child of Abraham. And, and undoubtedly Abraham did it himself. I mean, not Abraham, Adam did it himself. You would lay your hands on this poor thing. You'd, you'd confess your sins. You'd cut its throat and you'd burn it and it'd offer it up in the smoke to God, appealing for mercy. This, this process of transference. Scapegoat. Boy, is that vivid, huh? High priest is confessing the sins of the nation, lays his hands on this goat, and it is led out into the wilderness and to a place where it will never come back. You don't want that goat coming back into camp. And, and so you're led out because it bears away from us the sins. Well, that's strange stuff. Unless, of course, it's teaching a deep spiritual law. Then it's preparing us for the coming of the Messiah. The substitute to whom our sin is transferred must meet very exact qualifications. It's got to be a spotless lamb, doesn't it? It must be sinless so that death has no claim. He must be because it's ultimately not the blood of bulls and goats. It's going to be Messiah himself. He must be sinless. Death has no claim on him. Identical, meaning one of us. He's got to be a substitute for us. He's, he's one of us. Infinite. He, no, he must possess a worth greater than our weight of sin. I mean, somebody dies, that's nice. But how does that atone? How does that make up for the weight of sin and violation against the holy God? He must be willing he chooses this role, not a victim. That's very important. He is not someone who's been trapped and killed. This is not like you take, you know, one of these horrible uh, cults, uh, you know, ancient cults that would kill its victim and offer it up to, to its God, that kind of stuff. It's not a victim. This is a willing substitute. Tested. Someone who's genuinely good, who has overcome the temptations we face. It can't be a situation where you have somebody who's just innocent because they've never been tested. This has to be genuinely good because they have been tested and they've, they've, they've chosen goodness. And costly. The God, God the Father must pay the ultimate price. Let me show you where that is revealed, I think. And uh, go with me to Genesis 22. This is a little off the subject, but it's not. I'm not going to teach the whole chapter. I'm just going to tell you. But I want you to have it in front of you. The first place we went when we went to Israel, this is now my itinerary. The first place we went, we got, we, we got landed in the airport and the bus took us and we stayed that night in, a, in the city of Beersheba. Do you recognize that name? Abraham founded that town. Yeah, Abraham founded Beersheba. And I so wanted to see it. And I wanted to see it above all for one reason. There is, I had no idea how much archaeology is still there. There's an enormous tell. I mean, they've found, they found ancient altars. They, I mean, it's, it's quite the place. But I wanted to stand there. And I wanted to look northeast into the hills of Judea. And I wanted to say this. It was from right here that Abraham put the wood on the donkey. 
and he took Isaac and a container of fire and he walked for three days up to Mount Moriah. That is so important. That is such a powerful prophetic moment. What a strange thing. God says to Abraham, I I want you to offer your son. Now, God loathed human sacrifice. This is his violation of of every ethic possible in God's, God's economy. It must have shocked Abraham. This is the filth of the pagan religions, this human thing. This is the thing we despise. Offer your son. So he puts the, the, there's apparently a servant with them, and father and son walk three days to Mount Moriah. And then we, you know where Mount Moriah is? It's right where the altar of sacrifice was for the temple. And it's also within a few hundred yards of where the cross was. Isn't that interesting? He walks him from Beersheba, three days, it's about 50 miles, walks him, walks him to this place. And on the way, Isaac says, Father, we don't have a, a sacrifice. We have no animal. And what did Abraham answer him? The Lord will provide his own sacrifice. Well, we go through the whole thing. We, put, we build the altar. We put Isaac on it. And, and, and Abraham, in his, in his obedience, his shocked, disgusted obedience, has his knife in the air and is going to kill his son. And, and Hebrews tells us, believing God will surely raise him from the dead. And there's a voice. And the voice says, hey, Abraham, hold your hand. Now I know that you love me beyond all things. And and then it says, Abraham turned and looked, and what did he see? He saw a ram caught by its horns in a bush. And he went over, he took this ram, and he sacrificed that. And then he named that place, Mount Moriah, he named it Jehovah-Jireh, which means what? The Lord will provide, and then it says, for in the mountain of the Lord, the Lord will provide his own sacrifice. Now, what a strange story, except that that was the very place where the Father, God the Father, would bring his son and would sacrifice him. He would have to kill his son in that very place. It had to be costly. No one will be forced to love God We can reject him. He gives free will and respects our choices because he wants children, not slaves. He invites us to join him in the eternal love, unity, and joy he shares with his sons. His son, forgive me. Look, this business that God picks people and makes you believe in him is just baloney. He didn't even make the angels follow him. These were created spirits for his service. They don't have any claim. He gave them the freedom to rebel, and apparently a third of them did. The angels. Lucifer was an archangel, the angel of light, created for God's service. He lets him rebel. 
Don't tell me this guy's a control freak. He's anything but. He's the polar opposite. In the Garden of Eden, he plants it, puts a tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why? So they weren't in a beautiful prison. They had an option. You want to disobey? There it is. This is the nature of the God we serve. He wants us to know him and love him. He wants children, not slaves. This is deep in his character. God initiates relationship. He comes to us and is willing to endure rejection. Would you read this quote with me? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. Now, Jesus is standing outside, in this case, the door of a church. (laughs) And he's knocking and saying, would you let me back in? I'm out here, boys. Let me back in. But that's the heart. Again, how would you handle it? I'd fry the church. Aren't you glad I'm not? Yeah. How does Jesus handle it? Knocks on the door in humility. This is hard to comprehend, but it's, it's the God we're being shown. True spiritual union. There is one more spiritual law which is so important, it deserves a category of its own. By faith, we can be spiritually joined to another person. I'm going to say it again. By faith, we can be spiritually joined to another person. A real spiritual union can be formed, and we can become one with someone else. Where do you see that on a human level? Marriage. Exactly. You have, it says that you become, uh, Adam says of his wife, she is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Meaning she is as related, she's family. We are of the same family and blood as it were. When we have a wedding, they often have this beautiful ceremony, which is called the unity candle. And there'll be two candles burning. Often the, the, the mother's, uh, their mothers have lit those, the, the candle. And then they, the, when, the, when the bride and groom come there, and as they've been married, then they take uh, their, these two candles and they put them together and they light one. And then they blow out this two and put them there. Two lives, the two, two people have come together and have been joined into a new unity. My wife is as much my my family, as is my, are my children or, or my parents. We are now bone of bone and flesh of flesh. There's been a spiritual unity that's very, very real. Very real. Why does that matter? Watch this. Which means when we put our faith in Jesus, we can become as one with him just as he and the Father are one. Listen. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be what? 
in us. Listen, people, when we believe in Jesus Christ, when we put our faith in him spiritually, you become joined to him. You become one with him. He doesn't just do stuff for you and wave at you. You become literally knit to him. That's what's so lovely about water baptism. It expresses this so vividly. You stand there and you are immersed into the water. What does that represent? Death, yes, but more than that. It is, it is burial in a grave. What grave? Say Jesus' grave. Yeah. You are literally being buried into Jesus' grave. You are dying with him. You deserve, I deserve death for our sins, do we not? Well, in terms of the, of the righteousness, the laws of God, we do die. We don't, somebody doesn't just die for us, but joined to him by faith, we die with him. I have now died. I have died with Christ. I was joined to Christ. So his death is my death. I have, my sins are paid for as though I were executed for what I've done. Isn't that amazing? I'm going to show you this if you think I'm making it up. No, I'm so right. I mean, I will. I'll show you. This is what it says. You've seen me do this many times where, I, where I, we take the... Here's a good one. If this is you and if this open book were Jesus, you are placed in him. You are enveloped by him. You are enclosed in him. You are joined to him. Not just him doing something and you watching. You are joined to him. Let's go back to this. This means... That by faith, we can die with him. And by faith, we can participate in his resurrection. Literally, his death becomes our death. And when he escaped the grave, we escaped with him. Now, I'll show you the passage. Look with me at Colossians chapter 2. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Chapter 2. Verse 11. Paul, first of all, will talk about the fact that in, because we are joined to Christ, we now have been set free from the powers of our flesh. Doesn't mean we don't have any temptations, but it means we're free of them. He says, you, in, in him, say in him. Yeah. That's, the, that's the phrase Paul uses so much. In him, joined to him, just as I showed you. You were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in other words, by God alone, the removal of the body of the flesh. You've been, the, the, the flesh, the power of the flesh, meaning all that temptation and junk and passions, that has been separated, so you're free by the circumcision of Christ. But that's not my point. Verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism. Say, buried together with him. That's literally the Greek. Buried together with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him. Say, raised together with him. That's the Greek also. Through faith. See, raised, to get, raised up together with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him. Say, made alive together with him having forgiven us all 
our transgressions. I'm going to read the next because it's so cool. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. I love that. Buried together with him, raised together with him, made alive together with him, joined to Christ. You die with him and you rise with him. He's already escaped the power of death. The Holy One, which death could not hold, came out of the grave. Where were you at the moment? Say, in him. Yeah. You were, he carried you with him. He carried you out of the grave with him. He took you with him out of the grave. You have already, in a spiritual sense, been resurrected. There will come a moment when it will happen physically. But the reality of the, of the breaking of the power of death, has, because you're joined to him, has already happened. Last Adam. The last Adam, pardon me, knowing that Adam by his sin would bring death to all humans, God from the foundations of the world ordained that the reverse could also be true. If one man could bring death to us all, God in his laying these foundational laws decided it would also be true that one man could bring life to us. That the death of one man who would meet this God's meet his standards could restore life to all humans. Listen for since by a man came death by a man also came the resurrection of the dead for as in Adam all die. So also in Christ, all will be made alive. And I think the all means everybody, the righteous and the unrighteous literally all come out of the grave because of Christ. So also it is written. The first Adam became a living soul the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. The first Adam was composed of body, soul, and spirit and began his existence in full spiritual fellowship with God. His flesh had normal appetites, but his spirit was still in control of his body. Notice that? Adam's spirit was still in control of his body. He was not helplessly overwhelmed by temptation as we are now. But once he rebelled, the power of the Holy Spirit left him naked and alone. Have you ever wondered at the statement that after they sinned, Adam and Eve knew they were naked? You're thinking, what have you been looking at all along, you know? I'll tell you why I think that was true. I believe that prior to that sin, they were clothed in the Shekinah glory of God. Which is the state we will return to, by the way. See, we're going back to that beautiful state. You will someday shine like the sun. When, when they sinned, that's gone. And there's just two naked, lonely people standing there in the garden. The glory has left. That's, what, that's the curse that Adam left us. It isn't that he passed on a demon. I've, I've struggled with this. How do we get so messed up because of him? What the problem was... All of us now have born into the world without the glory of God enveloping us and being our strength. We're alone and our flesh and our temptations are way too great for us. Once that break in relationship took place, he and all his children 
became helpless victims of temptation too great for us to resist. And that was true of every human until the word became flesh. Paul calls Jesus the last Adam because he came to earth and became a man in a spiritual condition similar to Adam's before he fell. Jesus experienced the same temptations we experienced, but like the first Adam, before he sinned, Jesus' spirit was not separated from God. His temptations were real, and because he did not yield to them, they were more ferocious than ours. I mean, you tempt me for two or three minutes, I probably cave in. Jesus went the whole route. Do you ever think of that? Imagine temptations to which you don't give in. You get, to, you get to experience the whole ferocity of it. But he did not. He resisted. He remained holy so that when he died, death had no right to, to hold him. Death gets a grip on us when we sin. But Jesus never sinned, which made him the one unique person who could become our substitute. Is there any other human that's ever existed who could be that sinless offering? Yes? No? Any sin and death holds. That's the gripping point. That's the handle. He had to be holy or he would not come out of the grave. No one else could do this. No one, no human or angel is capable of meeting the God-ordained standards which were established at the moment of creation. Either God would send his son or the human race would perish. Not because God is a harsh judge, but because we humans have sold ourselves into a terrible bondage and there are righteous laws that demand our death. God can't just say no problem. There are laws set in motion. But God did send his son. The word of God became flesh and tabernacled among us so that he could become the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world so that the life in him could become the light of men. God's goal has never changed. He created the human race because he wanted children. Yes, he always had a begotten son, but the love the father and son share is limitless. It overflows. And the father and son long for more sons and daughters to fill God's household. So the father sent his son and Jesus willingly came so that he could give to those who believe in him the right to become children of God. I'm going to close with just reminding you of those two verses. John 1 verses 12 and 13. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. Would you stand with me? It is an unusual story, John tells. But it's the only story possible. There had to be an atonement. 
God has set righteous laws into place and he will judge sin. He has to, to be holy, to be right, to be, to be good. But he's also deeply merciful. Never did he want to destroy anyone. And so he's, he's got to deal with this. And he, in the, in the form, foundation stones of the, of the world, put into place pieces, principles, that this sin could be transferred. That by faith, someone could be joined to this righteous one. That that death that he died would be their death. And that resurrection that he rose would be their resurrection. It had to be a sinless offering. It had to be an infinite offering. It had to be all of these things. And it could only be one person. When you look at it, there's not options. This is the only option. So the word of God became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we saw his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Would you bow your heads with me one moment? That's the gospel. And I just want to ask today, Jesus portrays himself knocking on, on the door of our heart. He doesn't force his way in. He doesn't, he doesn't grab a hold of you and say, I'm taking you. He comes and he offers himself to you. It's humble, it's amazing. But you and I then have to open the door. How do you do that? You do it by believing. You reach out and say, Jesus, I choose to believe in you. You are God's son. You died on the cross for me. I believe these things. This is what I will cling to. You took the certificate of, of decrees against me and you nailed it to the cross. I believe. Anyone today, as we close, I just what I would do is agree with you. If you raise your hand, I'm going to just stand in agreement. We just need to signal it as it were and take that step of faith and say, this is my day. I'm receiving Jesus Christ. If you raise your hand, I'll agree with you. Yes, praise the Lord. Anyone else? Yes, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. This is not a game. I'm just giving an opportunity for faith for people to respond and say, I've heard the gospel and I'm not going any further till I've made my decision. We'll pray in just a moment. Anyone else? You want to raise your hand and say, I'm receiving him. I get it. The, the son of God became a man. He died and broke the power of death. I believe that he's the one I'm going to follow. He's the one I'm going to trust. I'm going to join myself by faith to him. My last, my last question. Anyone else? All right, church, let's pray. Heavenly Father, you're amazing that you would love us like this, that you would be humble. You would come to us and knock on the door of our hearts. You're not like anyone on earth, but we believe. Today, I respond as you knock on the door of my heart. I open that door and I say, come in, my father. And thank you for all you've done. You have sent your beloved son to die on the cross for me. He's the perfect sacrifice. He defeated death for he was holy and pure. This day, I join him by faith. 
I die with Jesus and I rise with Jesus. Death no longer has a hold on me. I have been set free. By faith, I am joined to him forever. My Savior, and he is my Lord. I surrender to Jesus Christ. I put aside rebellion and independence and selfishness, and I choose to follow my Lord and serve him and live for him all the days of my life. Jesus Christ, my Savior and my Lord. Now, I'm going to pray for the fullness of the Spirit because that is, when it says born of God, he's talking about the Spirit of the Lord coming literally into us and dwelling in us. So if you would like to put your hand on your heart, you're laying hands on yourself is what you're doing. And let's pray. Holy Spirit, you are a wonderful gift. You are the power I need, the wisdom I need, the goodness I need. And you have been sent to me without limit. Rivers of living water will dwell within my innermost being. This moment, I welcome you. Come in, Holy Spirit. Dwell in me, a holy temple. Never leave me for all eternity. I, I love you. I receive your correction, your encouragement. I will learn to listen to you. I want your gifts and graces to be released in my life. I would be a spiritual man or woman. In Jesus' powerful name, I receive the gift, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Blessed be God. Father, we stand in agreement with everyone who's praying this for the whole heart. Thank you, Lord, for your new birth. Thank you. This is not a game. This is eternal life. We believe it. We love you. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.